1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday post resurrection edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blind is producing. I don't know about you, but I had a great holy week. Yeah, it really started for me on Wednesday night and ran all the way through Resurrection Sunday. I hope you did, too. I'm reminded of 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. From the dead. What a, a tremendous time of celebrating. I spent um, Easter weekend with Tigered Covenant Church. They have a great choir. Deborah Greenwich is the choir director, and they, they put on a presentation on both Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday at two different locations. And just had a wonderful time reflecting on the events of Holy Week and celebrating with uh, friends old and new. And I hope you uh, had some good fellowship and a uh, time to reflect and celebrate as well. Well, today on the program, we're going to share with you a conversation I had with Al Moeller. He's the author of The Prayer That Turned the World Upside Down, The Lord's Prayer, A Manifesto for uh, Revolution. We'll also tell you a little bit about um, Jesus Christ Superstar that premiered live on NBC on Easter Sunday uh, evening. It was a reintroduction of an old favorite for some and, well, one that probably should have stayed in the last uh, century for others. We'll share more about that a bit later. Well, the media mischaracterized the uh, the occasion of Holy Week and certainly the resurrection of Jesus on several occasions. Now, this isn't altogether surprising. We, we are not shocked because this is uh, fairly commonplace. But from the National Public Radio to NBC News to CNN, they, uh, the media was pretty ignorant and misrepresented the basic and central Christian beliefs and doctrines around the uh, Holy Week and Resurrection Sunday. It would be understandable that it wasn't the fact that Christianity is the religion practiced by some 70% of Americans. So it is somewhat head-scratching, and this isn't the first time it's come around. It's not the first time people have celebrated. On NPR, for example, on Good Friday, they published an article that addressed a report that Pope Francis had denied the existence of hell. NPR originally described Easter as, and this is a quote, the day celebrating the idea that Jesus did not die and go to hell or purgatory or anywhere at all, but rather arose into heaven, end quote. Well, after receiving a much-deserved blowback, NPR corrected the piece to read, Easter, the day Christians celebrate Jesus' resurrection. How hard was that? How could NPR get one of the most fundamental beliefs of Christianity so terribly wrong? Far worse, NBC News marked the sacred occasion with a piece entitled, On Easter Sunday, Christians Must Remember How Easily and Often Our Faith is Used to Defend White Supremacy how easily and often our faith is used to defend white supremacy. And isn't that what the uh, Holy Week and Easter Resurrection Sunday is really all about? Well, the article replays a story of a bunch of white Southern racists who murdered several blacks and other defenders of Reconstruction one Easter Sunday in 1873 on Calfax County, Louisiana. It is, of course, a horrific story, But it's far from emblematic of Christian beliefs or practices, and certainly not during Holy Week. And it was 145 years ago. They chose uh, to cover this story, that piece, uh, on Easter uh, Sunday. 145 years ago. Ironically, the article does exactly what it condemns. It seeks to co-opt the Christian message, ignoring its central teaching, so as to promote an anti-Donald Trump, pro-leftist political cause. The question once again is, how did the mainstream media get the Christian doctrine of Easter this wrong? But then there was what uh, may have been the worst understanding of Easter, this one from CNN, in an article titled, How Easter Became a Hashtag Me Too Moment, which was not listed as an uh, opinion piece. Author John Blake asserted that Jesus was a victim of sexual humiliation as a result of being hung naked on the cross. And therefore, if linking the Easter story with the hashtag MeToo movement is offensive and bewildering to some, perhaps that is fitting, end quote. Well, additionally, Mary Magdalene was a hashtag MeToo victim of male authority. Blake continued, the Easter story in the gospel have a jarring, unexpected quality about them as well. The stories are enigmatic and elusive. They continue to yield surprises even 2,000 years later. They are in some ways much like the figure of Jesus himself. Well, while attempting to sound profound, Blake reveals once again a shocking amount of ignorance of what Easter is actually about. I think uh, the state of his uh, undress was probably not the uppermost uh, issue on the mind of Jesus, who is bearing the weight of the whole world and experiencing for the first time a a kind of separation from God the Father. Well, the journalist should be primarily concerned with accurately reporting the news rather than promoting an agenda. However, the vast majority of those in the media reports... uh, Reporters have committed themselves to the promotion of a particular cause, and in so doing, they've created simplistic and flawed caricatures of those they revile, many of whom revile Christianity. Then speaking as if they fully grasp the true motives and beliefs of those they oppose, they label them foolish and backwards, as the Apostle Paul astutely predicted. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God." That's 1 Corinthians 1.18. So again, we shouldn't be surprised. This is to be expected. Christianity, by the way, is not about promoting white supremacy, a political agenda, or as a means of awakening Americans to some social justice cause. The message, particularly of Resurrection Sunday, of Holy Week and Easter, is that Christ accomplished what he came into the world to do, to defeat sin and death and rescue sinners from hell. All who believe in Jesus can rest in certain hope that they, like him, will one day rise from the grave and live with him in heaven forever. Having been fully forgiven and cleansed from all their sins... This is what Christians celebrate at Easter. Sadly, some folks don't quite uh, catch the central focus and meaning of it. Well, I was, was going to share with you a Chuck Todd's outburst on NBC. He went on to uh, say, well, let me just share just a little bit last Friday, which was good Friday in uh, the uh, Western Christian world. The, a um, broadcast journalist, NBC's Meet the Press host, uh, Chuck Todd, used his media bullhorn to mock and further divide Americans over religion. He tweeted, uh, I'm a bit hokey when it comes to Good Friday. A bit hokey, he writes. I don't mean disrespect to the religious aspect of the day. Then he heaps disrespect on the religious aspect of the day. But I love the idea of reminding folks that any day can become good. All it takes is a little selflessness. Uh, uh, on our part, works every time. Completely missing the point of Good Friday. It's not a matter of people just deciding to be good and do good. It's the, it's the point is we're not good enough, and it required a tremendous sacrifice for us to even consider approaching the throne of grace, which God himself made available to us. Again, another example of uh, the media being tone deaf, but it also is a reminder that we have our work cut out for us if we want to share the gospel effectively, if we want to extend the love of Christ in a way that reflects his character So we can roll up our sleeves. We've had our celebration. We have been reminded of the tremendous gift we've been given. And now the Great Commission is uh, what we are called to carry out. We got our work cut out for us. But thankfully, we're not doing it on our own. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the program, we'll hear from Albert Moeller, the prayer that turned the world upside down, talking about the Lord's Prayer, a manifesto for revolution. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Turn my page here. Well, President Trump declared on Sunday the deal for the uh, Obama-era DACA program was no more, and he called for tough immigration reform after a report, rather, stated a caravan carrying more than 1,000 people from Central America is traveling through Mexico and to the United States in hopes of entering the states illegally or by asking for asylum. The president, who has uh, vowed to end catch and release, tweeted on Sunday morning that Republicans need to take the nuclear option when passing tougher immigration laws. The president had given Congress six months to pass legislation enshrining the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, or DACA, which protects about 800,000 young immigrants brought to the country illegally as children from deportation. Border patrol agents are not allowed to properly do their job at the border because of ridiculous liberal Democrat laws like the catch-and-release. That's a quote from the president's tweet. He went on to say, getting more dangerous, caravans coming, Republicans must go the nuclear option to pass tough laws now. No more DACA deal." Uh, again, the president tweeted, well, the caravan the president was likely referring to was first reported by BuzzFeed News on Friday, organized by Pueblos Sin Fronteras or People Without Borders. The caravan traveled through Mexico without authorization last week, according to the report. Officials in Mexico have not attempted to stop the migrants, although they have very strict um, uh, border laws and uh, would otherwise have prevented them. About 80 percent of them, uh, we're told, are from Honduras. The group's intent is to provide those people a safe way to travel to the United States. Well, hundreds of Central Americans marching from the southern state of Mexico to the center of uh, the north of the country are pictured in uh, articles. The North, or rather the National Border Patrol Council Union Chief Brandon Judd told Fox and Friends on Sunday that the migrants are riding on the benefit of catch and release when illegal immigrants are detained in the United States and released while they wait for their court hearings. Well, the president also threatened to pull out of the free trade agreement with Mexico unless the country did more to stop the flow of illegal immigrants entering the United States. The U.S., Canada, and Mexico are currently renegotiating The North America free trade agreement at Trump's insistence. Mexico is doing very little, if not nothing. I'm quoting very little, if not nothing at stopping people from flowing into Mexico through their southern border and then into the United States. They laugh at our dumb immigration laws. They must stop the big drug and people flows or I will stop their cash cow. NAFTA need wall. He tweeted. Well, this um, these big flows of people are all trying to take advantage of DACA. They want in on the act, he added. Of course, it wouldn't apply to them. But uh, Trump also spoke about DACA and Mexico before attending the Easter services at Episcopal Church near his home in Palm Beach, Florida. Mexico has got to help us at the border, he told reporters, as he held his wife Melania's hands. If they're not, or hand rather, if they're not going to help us at the border, it's a very sad thing between our two countries, end quote. Well, organizers believe about about two-thirds of the people in the caravan are planning to enter the U.S. illegally or by asking for protection, according to BuzzFeed. The caravan does not give the migrants the guarantee they will enter the U.S. and uses any form of transportation necessary to make it to the uh, the border. Most of the people are reportedly fleeing poverty, political unrest and violence in their home country. Nearly 400 sheriffs from around the country have sent a letter to all members of Congress calling for congressional action to secure America's border. The letter signed by 380 sheriffs representing 40 states. Uh, was spearheaded by Sheriff Thomas Hodson from Bristol County, Massachusetts. The letter posted online by the National Sheriffs Association says Congress must act to to secure, rather, the nation's border by enforcing existing immigration laws, tightening border security, supporting the replacement of and upgrades to current barriers and fences, constructing barriers along the U.S.-Mexico international uh, boundary as requested by those areas where it is needed, suspending and or monitoring the the issuance of visas to any place where adequate vetting cannot occur, ending criminal cooperation and shelter in cities, counties and states, and have zero tolerance and increased repercussions for criminal aliens. Without border security, they went on to say, and immigration reform, more Americans will continue to be victims of crime. Now is the time to act, the letter says, warning that serious illegal alien crime is increasing and harming America because Congress has refused to address the problem. Year after year, they uh, went on to say in the letter, we have been warning the federal government about detrimental increases in transactional drug trafficking, gang violence, sex trafficking, murder and other escalating incidents of crime by illegal aliens entering our country because Congress has failed to act the necessary reforms. Our citizens, legal residents, residents rather and legal residents face even greater dangers. Our national security is more vulnerable and our enforcement efforts have been seriously compromised. Without actions, they go on to, to warn that further delay and in inaction on immigration reform will cost more innocent lives, more financial hardships and even greater decline in the public trust that is essential to the preservation of our republic. The sheriffs also call for an end to local and state efforts like sanctuary city policies to thwart law enforcement efforts, writing, these sanctuary policies Policies, including the laws California enacted directly undermine the limit, uh, undermine and limit cooperation and collaboration between local, state and federal law enforcement, making it harder for America's sheriffs to protect our citizens and legal residents. In addition, the problem of MS-13 and other gangs that operate back and forth across our borders has become worse because of our failure to secure the border and the continued uh, court ordered catch and release policies. Earlier this month, or rather last month, National Sheriff's Association Executive Director Jonathan Thompson, he issued a statement um, condemning Oakland Mayor uh, Libby Schaaf for alerting criminals that there uh, would be a law enforcement operation in uh, in her area, which Thompson said uh, put both citizens and police in danger, writing, what the mayor is doing is dangerous and reckless. By alerting the public of the operation, she gave known criminal illegals, a safe harbor, which ultimately put the people in that area as well as law enforcement in danger. And the sheriff's letter says these types of policies not only frustrate law enforcement officers, they also endanger their lives, saying the failure of Congress to create legitimate and comprehensive immigration reform for more than 20 years has dramatically undermined our ability to keep our communities safe. This is not. Uh, this not only puts our law enforcement at serious risk for danger, but further puts them in an untenable situation of violating our oath and promise to enforce the law. Again, 380 sheriffs representing 40 states penning that letter to every member of Congress. The Justice Department has filed a lawsuit against California, the state, over a state law giving it the power to override the sale of federal lands, the department announced today. The suit marks the... The latest battle between President Trump and the nation's most populous state, at least for now, where Democrats have uh, tried aggressively to thwart the president's agenda. Under the law, which was passed in September, California has the first right to purchase federal lands or to arrange for a specific buyer. Lawmakers had expressed concern that the Trump administration would allow more logging, oil drilling or development. The Constitution empowers the federal government, not state legislators, to decide when and how federal lands are sold. The Attorney General Jeff Sessions said in a statement, California was admitted to the union upon the express condition that it would never interfere with the disposal of federal land. And yet, once again, the California legislature has enacted an extreme state law attempting to frustrate federal policy, end quote. Well, the Justice Department also sued California last month over laws to uh, restrict cooperation with federal immigration authorities. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom, a member of the Lands Commission, says the Trump is attacking California. California's way of life. Well, we'll see what happens. California has a number of lawsuits against the president as well. Well, while Attorney General Jeff Sessions, by the way, has decided to hold off on naming a second special counsel, which members of Congress have been requesting for some time now, he reached well outside Washington for a federal, uh, federal pos- prosecutor to investigate possible wrongdoing by the FBI and the Justice Department. Well, he announced on Thursday last week in a letter to members of Congress that rather than name another special counsel, he has tapped Utah U.S. Attorney John Huber to work with the Justice Department's Inspector General, who has limited authority and no prosecutorial power, to review multiple issues of Justice Department and FBI conduct. The conduct under scrutiny occurred during the Obama administration as FBI and justice officials investigated matters connected with 2016 presidential candidates Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. We understand that the Justice Department is not above criticism and it can never be that the department conceals errors when they occur, Sessions said in a letter to the Senate. Judiciary Chairman Chuck Grassley, House Judiciary Chairman Bob Goodlot and House Oversight and Government Reform Committee Chair I am confident that Mr. Huber's review will include a full, complete and objective evaluation of these matters in a manner that is consistent with the law and facts, Sessions wrote. And he added, I receive regular updates from Mr. Huber and upon conclusion of his review, will re- receive his recommendations as to whether any matters not currently under investigation should be opened, whether any matters currently under investigation require further resources, or whether any matters merit the appointment of a special counsel. So that's still a apparently on the table. Now, Huber will work in cooperation with Justice Department Inspector General Michael Horowitz, who's been examining related issues, according to Sessions. When we come back from the break, I want to tell you a little bit about Mr. Huber, who is uh, overseeing this process and will help uh, the attorney general determine whether or not a special uh, counsel should, in fact, be appointed, which, as I mentioned, members of Congress, at least Republicans in Congress, have been requesting for some uh, some weeks now. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: Hey, we're back 35 minutes after 4 o'clock. Just a reminder, later in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to share a conversation with Albert Moeller, his book, The Prayer That Turned the World Upside Down, The Lord's Prayer, A Manifesto for Revolution. Talking about uh, Mr. Huber that's been assigned by Jeff Sessions to work alongside the uh, inspector general uh, to probe the FBI and the Justice Department's actions to see if there's uh, enough there to merit a special Uh, prosecutor to look into um, possible abuses. Well, Mr. Huber um, was an appointee before, uh, uh, an Obama appointee rather, before he was a Trump appointee. He nominated uh, President uh, Obama, nominated Huber uh, to serve as U.S. Attorney for Utah in 2015. He was confirmed by the Senate that June, again in 2015. Utah's two Republican senators uh, both gave him their highest recommendations. He offered uh, his resignation in March of 2017 to allow the, uh, Trump Justice Department to decide his fate. The administration decided to keep him. Well, last June, he was renominated for the position, and the Senate confirmed him in August by a unanimous vote. So Mr. Huber has been a part of that agency. Um, he ascended, uh, his ascent during his legal career has been somewhat impressive. He gained some national prominence in the Justice Department before his appointment as U.S. Attorney. Two previous U.S. Attorneys General, John Ashcroft in 2004 and Eric Holder in 2010, recognized ...recognized his prosecutorial efforts, according to the department... Of course, a Republican, Democrat. While serving as U.S. attorney, he was uh, on the Attorney General's Advisory Committee under both the Obama and Trump administrations. And in 2017, Sessions named him vice chairman of that panel. He's also led the committee's uh, Terrorism and National Security Subcommittee, as well as the Interagency Domestic Terrorism Executive Committee. He provided training to other federal prosecutors nationally on issues of domestic violence, national security, and violent crimes. And last year, he was chairman of the Rocky Mountain high-intensity drug trafficking area that serves Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, and Utah. Special Counsel Robert Mueller, a former FBI director, is probing allegations of collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russian government during the 2016 election season. And after Sessions recused himself because of his own advisory role in the campaign, the Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein selected Mueller as special counsel in part because he was not currently working in the Justice Department. His choice of a prosecutor inside the Justice Department but outside Washington is similar to past precedents for Sessions. One difference is that Huber will be working uh, with Horowitz, the department's inspector general. Inspectors general have the investigative power within a single agency, in this case, the Justice Department, but an inspector general can't prosecute individuals or subpoena information. As a prosecutor, Huber can expand the investigation into individuals or institutions outside the Justice Department itself, and a prosecutor has the power to call a grand jury to subpoena information and issue indictments. So this broadens the the scope of what the inspector general could do. Um, this is similar to the Bush administration's Justice Department appointment of Patrick Fitzgerald. He was a U.S. attorney from Illinois. He investigated the leaking of CIA employee Valerie Plame's name. Also, um, the Sessions. Um, Uh, Letter comes just days after the department announced that the inspector general was investigating how the FBI applied the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act to spy on a former Trump campaign aide, Carter Page. Well, the FBI obtained a warrant that relied heavily on an opposition research document, which I won't go into because you already know who funded it and what's it about, what it's about, rather. A declassified House Intelligence Committee memo alleged that FBI and justice officials did not fully inform the FISA court that information they used seeking that warrant to spy was based on a political document. And the former uh, top FBI officials also could face legal scrutiny in that case. Finally, um, uh, the initial reaction from Congress, um, uh, one uh, former attorney general from Utah uh, who worked with Huber says this, speaking to the uh, the Daily Signal, uh, U.S. Attorney John Huber is a capable public servant and a man of great integrity. Uh, Orrin Hatch, the senior senator from Utah, praised the selection, saying Attorney General Jeff Sessions revealed today in a letter to Congress that the United States Attorney John Huber, Utah's top federal prosecutor, has been leading the investigation of certain issues related to the actions by the department. And Hatch said in a public statement, adding, Mr. Huber brings decades of experience to his latest and now very public assignment. Most importantly, he brings the independent perspective of an accomplished federal prosecutor who has spent his career far removed from the politics of Washington. Attorney General Sessions has picked the right man for the job. I am confident that Mr. Huber will perform these duties with the utmost integrity, and I look forward to learning the results of his work at the appropriate time. So rather than appoint another another, uh, investigation, this is another route that the Attorney General has taken, and it will yield a recommendation as to whether or not further action is uh, required. Well, the Texas county has been hit with a lawsuit for concealing records in relation to non-citizens on voter rolls. The public interest legal firm, or PILF, as it's known, an election integrity group, filed a complaint on Thursday against the Office of the Harris County Voter Registration in the United States District Court for the Southern District of Texas for its refusal to disclose documents or allow the uh, inspection of its voter rolls in uh, relation to uh, registrants who were removed after it was discovered that they were not citizens. The foundation seeks a declaration that all of the defendant's records related to uh, list maintenance, including but not limited to those explicitly requested by the foundation, are subject to public inspection without and by the state public disclosure laws and must be preserved for such inspective uh, purposes, the complaint reads. Well, the foundation seeks an injunction to compel the defendant, Bennett, to comply with the the, uh, law through an order commanding her to permit inspection and duplication of all records concerning the maintenance of registration rolls. Well, voter registration officials in that county, Harris County, previously testified that Thousands of non-citizens were discovered on their rolls every year, and then handed over the district attorney uh, for to the district attorney for prosecution. Houston, one of the largest cities in the United States, is located in Harris County. Well, PILF initially requested to review the records of Harris County on the 1st of December of last year, but was ultimately denied access to the documents by January the 11th. The group then spent a final, or rather sent a final notice to the county in late January, warning that they could face a federal lawsuit if they continue to deny the group inspection of the records. PILF is seeking access to those records under Section 8 of the National Voters Registration Act of 1993, which allows individuals to inspect records concerning the implementation of programs and activities conducted for the purpose of ensuring accuracy and currency of official lists of eligible voters. Well, Harris County has previously admitted a problem with non-citizen registration and voting. Uh, This, according to J. Christian Adams, president and general counsel of PILF, in the uh, suit. Election officials should be transparent and, in fact, are required by federal law to be transparent. Our requests to inspect records will help educate lawmakers and the public alike on how non-citizens are gaining entry into the voting system, how long they remain, how they vote, and what we can do to fix the issue. The question is not if, but how many non-citizens are participating. Harris County cannot expect to get away with avoiding its federal transparency responsibilities. Will the voter registration Registrar in Harris County did not um, respond to that qu- request and is still holding out uh, on those um, documents. Another Texas county was also recently threatened with a lawsuit for withholding identical records in relation to non-citizen registered to vote. Bexar County, which includes the city of San Antonio, also one of the most populous counties in the country, declined PILF's request to inspect their rolls following discovery or uh, admittance of non-citizens that were removed from the rolls in December, so we don 't have any uh, indication at this point how uh, broad the and deep the problem uh, problems are there. Well, Congress failed to tamp down Obamacare premiums in last week 's uh, last couple of weeks spending bill shifting the burden onto states where governors and legislatures are facing growing pressure, but few good options to bring down rates before companies finalize their two thousand and nineteen prices. Politicians at all levels of government are fearing another round of sticker shock for consumers this fall, as insurers jack up their prices, blaming both the original 2010 health law and the moves Congress and the Trump administration have made to undercut it in the years since. Capitol Hill had a chance to lower rates with a stabilization bill Republicans had hoped to attach to last week's spending package, but Democrats balked and Congress likely missed its uh, last chance to act before the new rates are set. And I should also mention that repeal and replace never happened either. With federal policymakers sputtering, states are plotting their own steps seeking federal permission for reinsurance programs and uh, that subsidize pricey customers or waiting for final instructions from the Trump administration on short-term plans that don't fully comply with Obamacare's coverage requirements, which are strict. A few blue states are considering a restoration of the individual mandate to buy insurance or pay a tax after congressional Republicans axed penalties tied to the federal version of Obamacare starting in 2019. Maryland's governor, for example, Larry Hogan, this week said that he's ready to sign a one-year fix that will redirect $380 million the windfall insurers would set to receive from the GOP's tax plan into a state tax that subsidizes its most expensive enrollees on the Obamacare exchange. he's also set to approve a companion measure that asks the trump administration to sign off on a long-term reinsurance program that remits savings from subsidy dollars which would have been spent to blunt higher premiums back to the states so they are scrambling not just that state but all of them under the new scratch your head rules quick break 45 minutes after four o'clock you're listening to the georgine rice show
1: you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: 51 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to Georgine Rice Show. A federal judge has thrown out a lawsuit that was filed by um, nonprofit Prager U against Google, arguing that the subsidiary YouTube didn't violate federal uh, First Amendment rights by particularly censoring or limiting the organization's YouTube videos. Well, presiding U.S. District Judge Lucy Koh, she ruled on Monday that inherently serving as a privacy company, Google has no obligation to equally apply its services or, in this case, its ostensible penalties. Defendants do not appear to be at all um, like, for example, a private corporation that governs and operates all municipal functions for an entire town, co-wrote while referencing other cases involving the First Amendment, according to a Courthouse News Service, or one that has been given control over a previously public sidewalk or park, or one that has effectively been delegated the task of holding and administering public elections. Well, Prager PragerU attempted to argue that although YouTube is a private entity, Google operates it as a public forum, perhaps due to its apparent ubiquitousness and thus is liable to First Amendment oversight. Marissa Strait, PragerU's CEO's said she doesn't see the ruling as a defeat, describing it as far from an unexpected setback uh, since other legal avenues remain, such as higher courts. Already, some headlines in the media would have you believe uh, we have lost our case outright. Quite the contrary. This is only the first step in the process, and we join our legal team in its optimism for the future prospects of our lawsuit. Uh, she said in a written statement. We thank the Honorable Judge Co. for her thoughtful ruling, which allows Prager U, in essence, to continue our efforts, she said. Well, Prager U filed a lawsuit back in October, and it accused Google through YouTube of restricting or uh, demonizing. Uh, demonetizing its video, same thing, uh, its videos on aspects of American government and politics, despite their general innocuousness and apparent compliance with the video platform's rules. Well, demonetizing uh, is a less alarming term for revoking sponsorship and thus ad revenue. Other restrictions come in the form of restricted mode, which means that users who are part of a larger network, like one operated by schools, libraries, or other public institutions, that voluntary... Uh, uh, turn on the feature um, cannot view content deemed inappropriate by YouTube. Well, the criteria for type of content to be blocked under restricted mode include drugs and alcohol, sexual situations, violence, mature subjects, profane and mature language and incendiary and demeaning content. Some observers consider that these criteria fairly are, are fairly vague and susceptible to subjectivity. And as a result, prone to unequal implementation. In fact, Nothing on PragerU, according to what I've viewed, has, would fall into any of those categories. But according to Craig Straseri, who's the chief marketing officer for Prager U, speaking to the Daily Caller, News Foundation weeks ago, at first we thought it might have been an algorithm or an innocent mistake causing our videos to be restricted. However, we have it in writing from Google, YouTube, that after having their team manually review our restricted videos, they deemed them inappropriate for younger audiences. If you've seen any of our videos, which I have, uh, they're very educational and are very appropriate for younger viewers. PragerU's videos cover wide-ranging topics like Is Gun Ownership a Right and Brexit, Why Britain Left the European Union as and is America racist? Well, guests invited to discuss such subjects in the videos include former and current professors and scholars from Stanford, Harvard, Yale, among them Alan uh, um, Dorshowitz, Prominent athletes, controversial political commentators such as Dinesh D'Souza. Um, By uh, demonetizing the uh, restricting and restricting the total of 50 videos, PragerU asserts that YouTube is targeting it for its relative ideological differences, while also equating the action to unlawful censorship and discrimination. PragerU's videos weren't excluded from restricted mode because of politics or ideology, as we demonstrated in our files, a YouTube spokeswoman told the Daily Caller News Foundation. PragerU's allegations were meritless, both factually and legally And the court's ruling vindicates important legal practices that allow us to provide different choices and settings to users. Well, the Daily Caller News Foundation spoke in February to two professors familiar with the issues. They said that while there's there does, for the most part, appear to be disproportionate treatment, legal arguments appear in Uh, incomplete, even dubious or weak. Nevertheless, PragerU plans to push ahead in the U.S. judicial system, hoping for different legal interpretations. So gaining access to that information uh, may continue to be restricted for... For some. About 75 students at Rockledge High School in Central Florida walked out of classes in support of the Second Amendment on Friday. The students say they felt silenced last week when students walked out in support of gun control. I am uh, uh, pro-Second Amendment, said one Rockledge junior and protest organizer, Anna Delaney, speaking uh, she said, I wouldn't mind deeper background checks, of course, but the Second Amendment will not be infringed upon. Well, many Rockledge students walked out of class on the 14th as part of the national school walkout that was held in support of the Parkland school shooting victims and to protest gun violence and call for gun control measures. They stood on the football field and formed a huge heart. About 75 students participated in Friday's walkout at Rockledge, Florida. Today reported the uh, protest lasted 20 minutes. They walked onto the school track carrying the American flag and signs that said guns don't kill people, people kill people. And I support the right to bear arms, the paper reported. Some wore Trump Make America Great Again hats and camouflage clothing. We were built on certain rights, and that was one of the original rights, that we should have the right to bear arms. One sophomore, Chloe Deaton, said of the group. She helped Delaney organize the walkout. Zachary Schneider a Jr. was quoted by uh, the paper as saying, it's all over the news right now that all students hate guns. I wanted to show that not all students feel that way. Rockledge principal Vicki Hickey uh, said the school treated the Second Amendment walkout exactly as it treated the walkout uh, that took place two weeks earlier. The paper reported she said both events were completely student driven. Forgive me if I uh, uh, smell fear from school authorities who knew if they objected to the second protest, the wrath of God would descend upon them, said one observer. Regardless, what I found interesting is that uh, apparently the pro-Second Amendment kids didn't know what the consequence would be and walked out anyway. Unlike the kids who walked out for gun control, knowing that nothing would happen to them, the pro-gun crowd must have felt some uh, trepidation given the attitude of their teachers and classmates. But again, that took place last Friday. Well, the back and forth between Russia and the United States continued. And Russia announced on Thursday that it will expel 60 U.S. diplomats, close the U.S. consulate in St. Petersburg in retaliation for U.S. measures taken in response to the poisoning of an ex-Russian spy and his daughter in Britain. But the White House vowed to deal with it. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said U.S. Ambassador John Huntsman has been summoned to the foreign ministry on Thursday, where he was given notice Russia was responding quid pro quo to the U.S. decision to order 60 Russian diplomats out of and close the Russian consulate in Seattle. Um, Huntsman later uh, in the day said there was no justification for Russia's move, arguing it showed Russia wasn't interested in dialogue with the United States about important matters. Um, State Department spokesman Heather Nauert uh, said Russia should not be acting like a victim. She called Russia's actions regrettable and unwarranted. The United States' decision to close the Russian consulate in Seattle prompted the Russian embassy in Washington, D.C. to tweet a poll asking social media users which U.S. consulate should be closed in Russia. USA Today reported St. Petersburg appeared to get the most votes in that poll. Interesting way to determine which one to uh, to close. Anyway, uh, Russia has adamantly denied any involvement in the attack. The former Russian spy and his daughter, he 66, she 33, were both poisoned with a nerve agent on March the 4th of this year in Salisbury, Britain. The father and daughter were found unconscious on a park bench in the town. The police officer exposed to the substance during the investigation was hospitalized and released last week. The former Russian spy is in critical condition while his daughter has been upgraded to stable condition. We'll continue to follow that story as it develops. Time is five o'clock. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. So stay with us. Also in the second hour, we'll hear from Albert Moeller, his book, The Prayer That Turned the World Upside Down. He's referring, of course, to the subtitle, The Lord's Prayer, a manifesto for revolution. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Six minutes after five o'clock is our time. In this hour, we're going to talk with Albert Moeller. He's the author of The Prayer That Turned the World Upside Down, The Lord's Prayer, A Manifesto for Revolution. The book is published by Thomas Nelson. He'll join us for the next two segments. Also, Jesus Christ Superstar was performed live on Easter Sunday. We'll tell you more about that Uh, presentation of a um, album that was released in the 60s, the Um, production in the 70s and the film in the 70s as well. Well, North Korea's Kim Jong-un is going to meet next month with South Korean President Moon Jae-in at a border village in a high-profile meeting that could prove significant in global efforts to resolve the decades-long standoff over Pyongyang's nuclear program. The announcement was made after officials met at the border village of... Well, it's a border village. The um, uh, Koreas plan to hold another uh, preparatory meeting on the 4th of April to discuss protocol, security and media coverage. Uh, issues during the April 27th meeting, according to the joint statement released by the countries. few other details were released at this point. The leaders of the two Koreas have held talks only twice since 1950-53 Korean War, in 2000 and 2007, under previous liberal governments in Seoul. A top South Korean official told reporters that uh, setting up dialogue to eliminate Kim's nuclear weapons program would be a critical point of the meeting. Ri Guan, a chairman of the state agency that Deals with inter-Korean affairs, led the North's three delegates, saying the past 80 days have been filled with unprecedented historic events between the rivals, referring to the Koreas' uh, renewed talks before the Winter Olympics and the agreement on the uh, on the summit. The announcement Thursday comes after a surprise meeting between Kim Jong Un and Chinese President Xi Jinping this past week, which. Uh, uh, the goal of which appeared to uh, seek improving relations ahead of the North's planned talks with Moon and President Donald Trump and setting up separate talks with Beijing, Seoul and Washington and potentially with Moscow and Tokyo. North Korea may be moving uh, to disrupt any united front among its negotiated counterparts by reintroducing China, which is the North's only major ally as a major player. North Korea also gains leverage against South Korea and the United States, according to analysts. Well, Washington and Seoul have said Kim previously told South Korean envoys that he was willing to put his nuclear weapons um, up for negotiation in his talk with President Trump. However, the North has yet to officially confirm its interest in a summit between Kim and Trump. So we'll see where that goes. And one of the major concerns is whether or not the United States uh, contingency would be prepared for such high-level talks, um, given the shakeup of the uh, the White House and the cabinet and uh, the delicate nature of these um, proposed meetings. They've been talking about it for some time at a defunct uh, Chinese space lab has reentered Earth's atmosphere and mostly burned up. Authorities in Beijing said uh, late Sunday, mostly. Hmm, it was not immediately clear if the remains of the space station known as Tiangong one had been accounted for earlier forecasts had said only about 10% of the bus size 8.5 ton <laughs> spacecraft would likely survive re-entry mainly its uh, heavier components such as its uh, engines a US strategic command's joint force space component command wow that's a mouthful confirmed that uh, Gong uh, 1 re-entered earth's atmosphere over the south pacific ocean at about 8:16 p.m. eastern time That was on the 1st. Launched in 2011, uh, the the satellite, China's first space station, served uh, as an experimental platform for bigger projects such as the uh, Tiagong-2 launched in September of 2016 and a future permanent Chinese space station. Two crews of uh, Chinese astronauts lived on that station while testing docking procedures and other uh, operations. Its uh, last crew departed in 2013 and contact with it was uh, cut in uh, 2016. Although the uh, Chinese station has received intense media coverage each year, around 1,000 large objects such as uh, lost satellites, uh, Uh, Rocket stages fall back to Earth. These numbers are projected to increase over the coming years as more and more satellites are placed into orbit. Only one person is known to have been hit by falling space debris. An American woman, Lottie Williams, who was uh, struck but not injured by a falling piece of a U.S. Delta II rocket while exercising in an Oklahoma park in 1997, which is why I just don't exercise because you never know what could happen. <clears throat> well, most famously, America's 77-ton Skylab crashed through the atmosphere in 1979. That spread pieces of wreckage near the southwestern Austria, um, Australia city of Perth, which fined the United States $400 for littering. So didn't cost quite as much as one might imagine. But there are other things uh, shaking up in China. They've hit back on trade uh, in the dispute between the United States, slapping tariffs on 128 U.S. products. Well, China announced uh, late last night that it would, in fact, retaliate for uh, the Trump administration's tariffs on steel and aluminum by imposing its own import charges on a list of 128 U.S. goods, including agricultural products ranging from fruit to frozen pork. The new tariffs, which China's uh, Ministry of Finance says began, uh, will begin today, add fuel to what many economists fear is a burgeoning trade war between the two economic powers. Beijing said it was uh, suspending its obligations to the World Trade Organization to reduce tariffs on U.S. goods and would instead impose 15% tariff on 120 U.S. goods, including fruit. On pork and seven other products, the duty would be 25%, the Ministry of Commerce said, according to Jinhua. Uh, News agency. Well, Beijing had warned last month that it was considering the tariff on a range of products. It seems to have um, followed that script. Other items include wine and nuts, as well as aluminum scrap. The ministry of the uh, said the United States had seriously violated the free trade principles of the WTO rules. China's suspension of some of its obligations to the United States is its legitimate right. As a member of the World Trade Organization, the finance ministry said in a statement. The differences between the two countries should be resolved through dialogue and negotiation. The statement went on to suggest the salvo from China follows the U.S. imposition of tariffs of 25 percent on steel, 10 percent on aluminum that were initially applied to several trading partners. However, the European Union, Argentina, Australia, Brazil, Canada, Mexico, South Korea... They've all since been temporarily exempted, while the White House has threatened further tariffs on China. Last month, the president set in motion a further $60 billion in tariffs on Chinese imports to punish Beijing for the theft of intellectual property. The South China Morning Post writes, Beijing has so far held fire against major agricultural products such as soybeans and major industries such as aerospace giant Boeing. Items that state-run daily Global Times suggest should be targeted. Well, the Nationalistic newspaper said in an editorial last week that China has nearly completed its list of retaliatory tariffs on U.S. products and will release it soon. The list uh, will involve major Chinese imports from the U.S., the newspaper wrote, without saying which items were on the document. Up next, we'll talk with Albert Moeller, his book, The Prayer That Turned the World Upside Down.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Dr. Albert Moeller. His latest book, The Prayer That Turns the World Upside Down, uh, the Lord's Prayer as a Manifesto for Revolution. And he takes the prayer word by word, phrase by phrase, and helps us to fully appreciate what Jesus taught his disciples and, by extension, us uh, in how to pray. Now, Dr. Moeller, uh, the uh, prayer goes on to make reference to the kingdom of God, your kingdom come. What does that mean uh, when Jesus tells us to pray, your kingdom come?
3: You know, it means that we are declaring, first of all, the fact that his kingdom is coming and that his kingdom will be the, the only reality eternally that will last. And we're, we're praying to see it. Uh, you know, we, we pray your kingdom come. and And then the next words help to explain what we mean by that. Your will be done. God's reign is where his will is absolutely obeyed. We're praying to see that take place. Uh, and, you know, Georgine, one of the first things is that's what every church should look like, every single church, every single Christian family every single Christian marriage should look like an outpost where the kingdom of heaven is becoming visible. And uh, there's something really sweet about that. I I think it's really encouraging to to Christians to know that we're not just praying that his kingdom will come in the day of judgment. We're praying that his kingdom will come in our lives Mm and our families and our marriages and our churches right now.
2: And that is such a radical idea because it's not only uh, indicating that his kingdom is coming and being born out in us, but it's also declaring, as you mentioned earlier, that an end is coming to the world in its system and that has to be very threatening to those outside of the kingdom
3: absolutely and 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 furthermore it's one of those situations in which uh, we better be careful what we pray for. We better not pray that unless we mean it. And, uh, and of course, Christians do mean it. We, we, we pray to see God's kingdom come. And, and, look, that means a mighty reversal. Just look at the parables of Jesus. Think of the rich man and Lazarus. When, when God's kingdom comes, things are going to be ordered radically differently than they are according to the kingdoms of this world.
2: Let's talk about forgiveness. Um, what does the Lord's Prayer teach us about Forgiveness.
3: Well, you know, it gets to our need, and it points out that one of our most important needs is for God's forgiveness. You know, in in the New Testament, John tells us that if we confess our sins, He, meaning the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Jesus says that we need regularly to pray that god will forgive us our sins our our debts our trespasses but the word debt is really important there because it's the picture of our sin Uh, we we are in debt to christ a debt we could not pay and uh, and then if we have experienced god's grace in christ uh, through his atonement then uh, we are also to demonstrate that to others so we're told Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive those who sinned against us. That's that's a powerful indictment, a, a humbling reminder.
2: Oh, absolutely. Let's explore this. Give us um, give us this day our daily bread, because we are very independent. We're in the 21st century. We're Americans. We provide for ourselves. We have an independent, independent streak. And uh, what does it mean in the context of the Christian faith when we say give us this day our daily bread?
3: You know, I know exactly the point you're making, Georgina, and you're exactly right. But it, we we have the uh, appearance, the illusion of self-sufficiency. Yes. <laughs> uh, in reality, uh, we can't make a single seed give forth uh, a grain. We, we we can't make anything. We, we take it for granted. We can go to the, the supermarket and get whatever we need. But the Bible was written to people, the vast majority of whom, Uh, We're in what we now call food insecurity. Uh, They did not know where their next meal was coming from. And and we're in a position, we should be thankful for that, where we we do have uh – uh, a lot to eat. But we need to remember where it comes from, and we need to remember how fragile that is. All, all, you know, Americans thought that they had the food problem licked, and then the dust bowl came mm-hmm. in the early decades of the 20th century. Uh, we, we can find ourselves hungry very, very quickly. But you know, Jesus pointed out, in, in fact, he said, you know, worry less about your stomach than about your soul. Uh, the The hunger of our bodies is actually pointing to an even deeper hunger And uh, that's a spiritual hunger.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Now, one of the more um, puzzling phrases in the Lord's Prayer to many is the the notion that uh, we pray, lead us not into temptation. It implies perhaps that otherwise we would be led by God himself into temptation. Explain why Jesus included that in the prayer and what he's telling us.
3: Yeah, you know, where it's helped here. We interpret Scripture by Scripture. Yes. So in the book of James, we're told that no one who sins is going to be able to say that he or she sinned because God tempted him. And, and the language is important here. I love the King James Bible. Uh, I've memorized so much of the King James Bible. But we use words differently than, uh, than a lot of people even speaking English use them in 1611. So the better translation there would be lead us not into testing, but deliver us from the evil one. So it's it's not that, uh, that that God tempts us as if He's hoping we'll sin in order that He can judge us, uh, but it's like the Book of Job. That's the best way to understand it. God allowed Job to be tested. Jesus said it's all right to pray that that testing you know uh, n- not come and, uh, and uh, in our lives in, in in full volume. Certainly, testing comes into every one of our lives. Uh, to, to be tested is uh, is to to be shown authentic in faith but the most important thing is jesus says pray but deliver us from the evil one it's not just from evil it's it's from the evil one and uh, we need that rescue from the evil one every single day you know i i think of as a parent puts a child to sleep at night you want to pray you know deliver this little one from the evil one uh protect this little one and as much as we pray that for our children we need to pray it for ourselves
2: yes yes what does the lord's prayer teach us about the character of god
3: You know, I think that the first thing is, is that God, who is perfect in every way, righteous and holy invites us in christ and by the way it's a prayer for christians it, it's for those who have come to profess the lord jesus christ his savior and and have repented of their sins and are his it's the invitation to come before a god who loves us and wants us what it says about god's character is exactly what's revealed in scripture that uh, he is a holy and righteous god who's a god of mercy and of grace and by that mercy and grace we get to go and pray hallowed be your name. May your name be made holy. And that means in us. In other words, may the world see the power of God's salvation in us.
2: We began our conversation just uh, focusing for a moment on the fact that uh, evangelicals in America today are largely prayerless or pray very little. What advice do you give to those of us who want to become better at prayer and yet have perhaps struggled or abandoned uh, the, the notion altogether?
3: I end where I began. I I am just so encouraged by the fact that Jesus' own disciples who were with him and saw him pray... Uh, had to ask him, Lord, teach us to pray. And and so we we understand that prayer is something we learn. And so I think a lot of evangelicals who don't pray or who feel very powerless or or unfaithful in prayer is because their expectations of prayer are, are, are something very unrealistic. Instead, it's a conversation with God. It's time we spend with our maker and our redeemer. And Jesus said, when you pray, don't pile up a bunch of words. Don't try to impress God with uh, with language. Instead, just pray like this. Simple prayer, reciting the gospel, reminding who God the Father is, asking that His kingdom come, His will be done, asking for daily bread and for the forgiveness of sins and, and for protection you know it's it's just the sweetest gift Christ gave his disciples i think i think it's just you know for evangelicals i would say this jesus wanted his disciples to learn by this prayer how to have a life of prayer and uh, and it starts with that small prayer we could say in 20 seconds
2: well i thank you so much for reintroducing this prayer that jesus taught his disciples and again by extension uh, inviting us into god's presence using this uh, this simple prayer. And I appreciate your taking the time to talk with us here today.
3: Georgine, thank you. It's always good to be with you.
2: Thanks, Dr. Moeller. Again, the book is titled, A Prayer That Turns the World Upside Down, The Lord's Prayer as a Manifesto for Revolution. And it really begs uh, the question, uh, what is our prayer life like? What is your prayer life like? I know as I've uh, gone through the book, it's, uh, it's caused me to rethink. Am I uh, taking seriously the command of Christ to pray. We didn't talk about it in our conversation, but Matthew 6, 13 tells us, Thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory, and we know how that goes. Many Christians who regularly say the Lord's Prayer in church services every week, or remember a version uh, they memorized as a child, recite concluding the words that don't appear in uh, some of the modern translations, but it's an important um, end um, uh, to a very important prayer he writes in the book that um how we pray and the very act of praying uh, is a theological uh, statement and his book certainly walks us through the theology of praying. He writes that every generation of Christians must learn to make the request, like the disciples before them, Lord, teach us to pray. Every generation of Christians must also remember that Jesus' response to that question now is the same as it was 2,000 years ago. If we would have the Lord himself teach us how to pray, then we must turn to the Lord's prayer for instruction. As the book has shown, each petition is a theology lesson lesson rather in itself. None of Jesus' Words were careless, and this is particularly true of the Lord's Prayer. This prayer turned the world upside down. This prayer is dangerous, overturning the kingdom of the principalities of the powers of the world. This prayer is hopeful, expecting the kingdom of God to come in fullness with Christ on the throne. This prayer is compassionate, teaching us to call God our Father and depend on Him for our every meal. This prayer is reverent, showing that nothing is more sacred than the name of God. This prayer is good news, reminding each of us that God forgives sin and delivers us from the powers of darkness. Again, the prayer that turned the world turns the world upside down. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to hear from one of our Christian schools in the area, North Clackamas Christian. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Dr. Albert Moeller, his latest book, The Prayer That Turns the World Upside Down, uh, the Lord's Prayer as a Manifesto for Revolution. And he takes the prayer word by word, phrase by phrase, and helps us to fully appreciate what Jesus taught his disciples and by extension us uh, in how to pray. Now, Dr. Moeller, uh, the uh, prayer goes on to Make reference to the kingdom of God, your kingdom come. What does that mean uh, when Jesus tells us to pray your kingdom come?
3: You know, it means that we are declaring, first of all, the fact that his kingdom is coming and that his kingdom will be the, the only reality eternally that will last. And we're, we're praying to see it. Uh, you know, we, we pray your kingdom come. and And then the next words help to explain what we mean by that. Your will be done. God's reign is where his will is absolutely obey. We're praying to see that take place. Uh, and you know, Georgine. one of the first things is that's what every church should look like. Every single church, every single Christian family Every single Christian marriage should look like an outpost where the Kingdom of heaven is becoming visible, and uh, there's something really sweet about that i I think it's really encouraging to, to Christians to know that we 're not just praying that his kingdom will come in the day of judgment we 're praying that his kingdom will come in our lives and mm-hmm. our families and our marriages and our churches right now
2: and that is such a radical idea because it 's not only uh, impl- indicating that his kingdom is coming and being born out in us, but it's also declaring as you mentioned earlier that an end is is coming to the world in its system and that has to be very threatening to those outside of the kingdom
3: absolutely and 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 furthermore it's one of those situations in which uh, we better be careful what we pray for. We better not pray that unless we mean it. And uh, and of course Christians do mean it. We, we we pray to see God's kingdom come. And and look, that means a mighty reversal. Just look at the parables of Jesus. Think of the rich man and Lazarus. When when God's kingdom comes, things are going to be ordered radically differently than they are according to the kingdoms of this world. Let's
2: talk about forgiveness. Um, what does the Lord's prayer teach us about forgiveness?
3: Well, you know, it gets to our need, and it points out that one of our most important needs is for God's forgiveness. You know, in in the New Testament, John tells us that if we confess our sins, He, meaning the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Jesus says that we need regularly to pray that God will forgive us our sins, our our debts, our trespasses. But the word debt is really important there because it's the picture of our sin. Uh, We we are in debt to Christ, a debt we could not pay. And uh, and then if we have experienced God's grace in Christ uh, through his atonement – then we are also to demonstrate that to others. So we're told, "Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive those who have sinned against us." That's that's a powerful indictment, a, a humbling. Reminder. Oh, absolutely. Let's
2: explore this. Give us, um, give us this day our daily bread, because we are very independent. We're in the 21st century. We're Americans. We provide for ourselves. We have an independent streak. And uh, what does it mean in the context of the Christian faith when we say, give us this day our daily bread?
3: You know, I know exactly the point you're making, Georgina, and you're exactly right. But we we have the uh, appearance, the illusion of self-sufficiency. Yes. <laughs> uh, in reality, uh, we can't make a single seed give forth uh, a grain. We, we we can't make anything. We, we take it for granted. We can go to the, the supermarket and get whatever we need. But the Bible was written to people, the vast majority of whom – uh, we're in what we now call food insecurity. Uh, th- th- they did not know where their next meal was coming from. And-, and we're in a position, we should be thankful for that, where we, we do have uh, uh, a lot to eat. But we need to remember where it comes from, and we need to remember how fragile that is. All, you know, Americans thought that they had the food problem licked, and then the dust bowl came mm-hmm. in the early decades of the 20th century. Uh, we, we can find ourselves hungry very, very quickly. But, you know, Jesus pointed out, in, in fact, he said, you know, worry less about your stomach than about your soul. Uh, the the hunger of our bodies is actually pointing to an even deeper hunger And uh, that's a spiritual hunger.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Now, one of the more um, puzzling phrases in the Lord's Prayer to many is the the notion that uh, we pray, lead us not into temptation. It implies, perhaps, that otherwise we would be led by God himself into temptation. Explain why Jesus included that in the prayer and what he's telling us.
3: Yeah, you know, where it's helped here. We interpret Scripture by Scripture. Yes. So in the book of James, we're told that no one who sins is going to be able to say that he or she sinned because God tempted him. And, and the language is important here. I love the King James Bible. Uh, I've memorized so much of the King James Bible. But we use words differently than, uh, than a lot of people even speaking English used them in 1611. So the better translation there would be lead us not into testing, but deliver us from the evil one. So it's it's not that uh, that that God tempts us as if he's hoping we'll sin in order that he can judge us uh but it's like the book of Job that's the best way to understand it God allowed Job to be tested Jesus said it's all right to pray that that testing you know uh, uh, not come and uh, and uh in our lives in, in in full volume, certainly testing comes into every one of our lives. Uh, to, to be tested is uh, is to to be shown authentic in faith. But the most important thing is Jesus says, pray, but deliver us from the evil one. It's not just from evil; it's it's from the evil one, and uh, we need that rescue from the evil one every single day. You know, I, I think of as a parent puts a child to sleep at night. You want to pray, you know, deliver this little one from the evil one. Uh, protect this little one, and as much as we pray that for our children, we need to pray it for ourselves.
2: Yes, yes. What does the Lord's prayer teach us about the character of God?
3: You know, I think that the first thing is is that God, who is perfect in every way, righteous and holy invites us in Christ. And by the way, it's a prayer for Christians. It, it's for those who have come to profess the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and, and have repented of their sins and are His. It's the invitation to come before a God who loves us and wants us. What it says about God's character is exactly what's revealed in Scripture, that uh, He is a holy and righteous God who's a God of mercy and of grace. And by that mercy and grace, we get to go and pray Hallowed be your name. May your name be made made holy. And that means in us. In other words, may the world see the power of God's salvation in us.
2: We began our conversation just uh, focusing for a moment on the fact that uh, evangelicals in America today are largely prayerless or pray very little. What advice do you give to those of us who want to become better at prayer and yet have perhaps struggled or abandoned uh, the, the notion altogether?
3: I end where I began. I I am just so encouraged by the fact that Jesus' own disciples who were with him and saw him pray... Uh, had to ask him, Lord, teach us to pray. And and so we, we understand that prayer is something we learn. And so I think a lot of evangelicals who don't pray or who feel very powerless or, or unfaithful in prayer it's because their expectations of prayer are, are, are something very unrealistic. Instead, it's a conversation with God. It's time we spend with our maker and our redeemer. And Jesus said, when you pray, don't pile up a bunch of words. Don't try to impress God with uh, with language. Instead, just pray like this. Simple prayer, reciting the gospel, reminding who God the Father is, asking that his kingdom come, his will be done, asking for daily bread and for the forgiveness of sins and and for protection you know it's it's just the sweetest gift Christ gave his disciples i think i think it's just you know for evangelicals i would say this jesus wanted his disciples to learn by this prayer how to have a life of prayer and uh, and it starts with that small prayer we could say in 20 seconds
2: well i thank you so much for reintroducing this prayer that jesus taught his disciples and again by extension uh, inviting us into god's presence using this uh, this simple prayer. And I appreciate your taking the time to talk with us here today.
3: Georgine, thank you. It's always good to be with you.
2: Thanks, Dr. Moeller. Again, the book is titled, A Prayer That Turns the World Upside Down, The Lord's Prayer as a Manifesto for Revolution. And it really begs uh, the question, uh, what is our prayer life like? What is your prayer life like? I know as I've uh, gone through the book, it's, uh, it's caused me to rethink, am I uh, taking seriously the command of Christ to pray. We didn't talk about it in our conversation, but Matthew 6, 13 tells us, Thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory, and we know how that goes. Many Christians who regularly say the Lord's Prayer in church services every week, or remember a version uh, they memorized as a child, recite concluding the words that don't appear in uh, some of the modern translations, but it's an important um, end um, uh, to a very important prayer he writes in the book that um how we pray and the very act of praying uh, is a theological uh, statement and his book certainly walks us through the theology of praying. He writes that every generation of Christians must learn to make the request like the disciples before them, Lord, teach us to pray. Every generation of Christians must also remember that Jesus' response to that question now is the same as it was 2,000 years ago. If we would have the Lord himself teach us how to pray, then we must turn to the Lord's prayer for instruction. As the book has shown, each petition is a theology lesson lesson rather in itself. None of Jesus' Words were careless, and this is particularly true of the Lord's Prayer. This prayer turned the world upside down. This prayer is dangerous, overturning the kingdom of the principalities of the powers of the world. This prayer is hopeful, expecting the kingdom of God to come in fullness with Christ on the throne. This prayer is compassionate, teaching us to call God our Father and depend on Him for our every meal. This prayer is reverent, showing that nothing is more sacred than the name of God. This prayer is good news, reminding each of us that God forgives sin and delivers us from the powers of darkness. Again, the prayer that turned the world turns the world upside down.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast, it is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey,
2: good afternoon, and welcome to the final segment of the Georgine Rice show. I don't know about you, but my attention was focused on the historic Jesus Christ and the resurrection that we celebrated. But NBC resurrected Jesus Christ superstar. And I remember I was pretty young when that first came out, and it was thrilling to me as a young believer to think that there was going to be some kind of a production first the album, then the production that focused on the life of Jesus. Pretty naive back then. I imagine that if you were going to talk about Jesus, it was going to be in a respectful way and certainly historically accurate or biblical. Well, it wasn't much of that, but it was uh, thrilling to hear in popular culture music that spoke of him. Well, as I mentioned, NBC resurrected Jesus Christ Superstar on Resurrection Sunday. You might remember the line, Jesus Christ Superstar, do you think you're what they say you are? Well, that was the question sung by Judas Iscariot. And a backup chorus, it's uh, reverberated at the time across popular culture for almost a half a century now. With it, there has been another second question. How should Christians respond to a catchy musical that casts a skeptical and at times flamboyantly irreverent? Well, light on the story of Jesus. These are the questions that uh, were brought to life once again this Easter Sunday when NBC broadcast Jesus Christ Superstar. Now, I didn't watch it because, quite frankly, as I mentioned, I had already been to a rousing worship service at uh, Tigered Covenant. The choir, it was just, it was a perfect way to celebrate his resurrection. I won't go into the details again. But nonetheless, so I didn't watch NBC's rendition of the uh, play. I've seen it before. As I mentioned, it came out when I was uh, quite. quite Quite young, but the show aired live this Sunday. It followed a live concert format. It had uh, minimalistic sets, and on-camera audience was watching singers and contributing. Uh, uh, contributed rather, sort of an aura of the rock star celebrity that uh, the musical subtext points to. Um, uh, the uh, Oscar-winning singer John Legend was uh, Jesus. Hamilton's Brandon Victor Dixon was Judas, and singer-songwriter Sarah Bareilles uh, was Mary Magdalene. I'm not familiar with some of those names. Others. Uh, a bit more. Christianity Today offered a preview of the event that took place this Sunday and they reminded me a bit of the history of when this came out the first time around. They write that the musical got its start in the late 60s at a time when the same youthful idealism and anti-establishment sentiment that led to so much social and political unrest was beginning to, uh, to be channeled in a number of spiritual directions. Uh, the title song was released as a single in 1969, the same year Larry Norm, or rather Larry Norm- released his first album and inaugurated the era of Christian rock music. Now, again, I, would, I remember all of that. The song's composers, Andrew Lloyd Webber and lyricist Tim Rice, no relations. They were then 21 and 25, respectively. They'd already set part of the uh, Bible to uh, to music with Joseph and the amazing Technicolor uh, Dreamcoat. Now they were embarking on an adaptation of the events leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, but did not include it. It was told from the point of view of Judas, who thinks highly of Jesus as a political revolutionary figure, but he's disturbed by the idea of Jesus divinity. Now, some of you know that story. You've heard the music. You've seen the play. Well, the single led to an album in in 1970, which was first released in uh, Lloyd Webber and Rice's native UK. Lloyd Webber stated recently that the recording, which omits the resurrection and depicts the apostles as somewhat vain, wasn't that controversial at first, mainly because his fellow Brits simply ignored it. But then the album came out in the United States where it became a huge sensation and a huge controversy. Some Christians condemned it outright. Others, like It and even co opted it. According to a 1971 cover story in Time magazine, some of the first stage versions of Jesus Christ Superstar were unauthorized musicals put on by churches in cities and towns, large and small, from New Jersey to New Mexico who were a singing superstar to stir up their congregations and perhaps draw new converts. Some of these churches may have even tried to fix the musical's theological problems, and they are many. Billy Graham claimed in a sermon he gave in June of 1971 that some people in Kansas City got hold of the rock opera and they carried it right on to the next step, the Resurrection. While others were less impressed by the album, suggested that Christians should come up with their own alternative – Uh, Cheryl Forbes, who was reviewing the album in Christianity Today at the time, claimed that there were uh, there was no faith and no victory in the music, which she found haunting and hollow, though she did acknowledge that it told the older generation what young people are saying. She expressed hope that some Christian composer will take the cue and produce a rock opera about Christ that ends not with hollow questions, but with triumphant answers. Well, the divisions didn't go away. Um, the Christian div- uh, divisions didn't go away when the album developed into a Broadway musical, which opened in October of 1971. The show depicted Herod as a transvestite and showed Jesus being crucified on a triangle rather than a cross. It attracted Christian and Jewish protesters alike, the former for its irreverence, the latter because its treatment of the Jewish priests and crowds seemed anti-Semitic. In the meantime, the producers sued more than a dozen religious groups per- for copyright infringement to get them to stop putting in, uh, their own uh, versions out as a musical. By and large, Christians who had expressed cautious appreciation for the album were more dismissive of the show. Uh, Mr. Stephen Rose, writing for The Christian Century, said the Broadway show was theologically incoherent and should have remained a recording. He, uh, his uh, review of the show for Christianity Today said its bizarre effects and for the shock of it, images had overwhelmed the lyrics and emptied them of their meaning. Um, A Christianity Today editorial at the time added that the stage production had destroyed the record's impact and lost the album's thoughtful, discerning awareness of a generation's concern with Jesus and his identity. Well, regardless, the, musical, uh, uh, the musical's culture influ- uh, cultural influences, rather, continued to spread. And by the time the film version of Jesus Christ Superstar came on in 1973, it was actually the third hippie-flavored Jesus musical to hit the movie theaters that year. It was followed, uh, uh, or rather, it followed Johnny Cash's explicitly evangelical The Gospel Road and the film version of Stephen Schwartz's parable-heavy Godspell. But in some ways, it was still the most divisive of the bunch. Uh, Again, Forbes, writing for Christianity Today, called the superstar movie a theological disaster, but an ecumenical triumph because it had united Jews and Christians of all stripes in condemning the film. But again, not all Christians rejected the film out of hand. James Wall, writing for the uh, Christian Century, he called the film compelling, moving and visually stunning and concluded that it is a work of cinematic art, which just might strengthen the viewer's faith in its ordinary, uh, its original story. Well, that's a bit of a stretch. Anyway, st- since then, the musical has uh, been performed countless times and in a variety of styles. Notably, modern versions have dropped the flower people aspect of the earlier productions, sometimes finding new ways to plug the musical into contemporary concerns. While a 1990 production put the actors in traditional biblical costumes and was said to have a reverential tone overall, a 2003 production, reimagined Jerusalem's temple as a version of Wall Street with stockholders uh, taking the place of the money changers. And while the show isn't as controversial as it once was, it's uh, still greeted with uh, protesters here and there. Most bizarrely, perhaps a Polish production in 2006 was going to take place at a former concentration camp until Jewish leaders convinced the authorities to call the thing off. While the upcoming, or rather the the, uh, Easter Sunday live in concert broadcast put a new spin on the musical, Uh, the part of Herod is now being played by, or was played by Alice Cooper, the legendary Shock rocker who's been quite uh, open about his Christian faith. In fact, we shared a bit of his testimony last week. Uh, this Herod won't be in drag. And interestingly, the NBC broadcast joins recent films like Risen, The Shack, and Killing Jesus and casting a non white actor as Jesus and, uh, for that matter, as Judas. In the Jesus Christ superstar film, Jesus was white and blonde while Judas was uh, played by a black singer. The characters' frustrations with Jesus and his increasingly spiritual mission seem to echo the black communities and patients with white Christianity and its lack of engagement with justice issues. In the NBC broadcast, both Jesus and Judas were in fact played by people of color, black men, uh, which suggests the version of the musical uh, may resonate in a different way. And as always, there is the question of how the musical will um, handle the resurrection. In any case, the fact remains that uh, for a few hours on Easter Sunday, people... um, who may not have gone to church uh, that morning, watched a show about Jesus, listened to Judas ask who Jesus really is. And it's a good question, and one might hope that uh, the hearer might actually take the question more seriously than the play would suggest. Again, that was on Sunday, and I imagine you could probably find it if you wanted to check it out. Well, coming up this week on Tuesday, we're going to talk with uh, Charles Chrismere. He's the author of Hearts of the Fathers, Leaving a Legacy That Lasts. On Wednesday, we'll talk with Craig uh, Glass. He's the author of Noble Journey, The Quest for a Lasting Legacy. Might pick up a theme there. On Thursday, Brian C. Stiller will be my guest. From Jerusalem to Timbuktu, a world tour of the spread of the gospel, the spread of Christianity. It's a book published by... um, Enter uh, Varsity Press, and it's an interesting uh, look at how uh, the uh, gospel began in uh, Israel and Jerusalem and spread not only uh, throughout uh, that countryside, but across the globe and its influence. Uh, on many nations. So I'm looking forward to a conversation with Brian Stiller from Jerusalem to Timbuktu. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blind for producing, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your dream. Have a great night.
1: Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at KPDQ.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show. And like us on Facebook and join us live every weekday at four for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.